Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, this is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael, and today we are excited to welcome back Dan Moore, who is a member of the Fraternity of Hidden Light and has been researching and working with the Hermetic Kabbalah and other occult topics for over 50 years. Today, he's coming on to talk about the most fascinating and sometimes confusing topic, alchemy. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everybody. And first of all, the big announcement is that our show just received its for its 1,000th subscriber. So thank you guys so much for that. That's really just totally awesome. Um, we have all kinds of cool shows coming up. We have in this coming month, uh, in March, we have Merle Yost coming back, who will talk about relationships. Karen Frasca, who's going to be talking about some Irish mythology for um, St. Patrick's Day. And we have Lama Kathy Wesley, who's very popular. And then Jacqueline Delib. So some really great shows coming up. So join us. Um, get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com. S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out. And uh, leave us a coffee on Ko-Fi if you uh, can afford to do so. If not, we love having you anyway. And uh, by all means, you know, subscribe to our channel. That's actually one of the very best things you can do for our show. So I don't want to take up too much time because I know this is a big topic. So I will hand it back over to Krista. So take it away, Krista. Great. Thank you, Michael. And yes, thank you all of you for subscribing and helping us to reach that awesome goal of 1,000 subscribers. So we're going to get going now. So welcome, Dan. Oh, sorry. Being back with you and Michael, I enjoy this very, very much on what's a very beautiful day here in Southern California. Congratulations on your uh, achievement there, and I look forward to helping you folks uh, continue on with that. Well, thank you, and we're happy to have you back. It was all really very interesting, the first um, show we had with you, and I'm I am very uh, intrigued by how we're going to cover this huge topic. And I will say personally, I have been often confused by alchemy and, and, my, and, and often to the point where I'm afraid to even delve into it. So yeah. let's get started with it. Okay. It, it is a very large, uh, very kind of sprawling, confusing, uh, sometimes contradictory thing, only because there has never been one seminal work, one book, a one documentary film that describes exactly what alchemy is uh, from beginning to end. So that in itself is a, a big issue. But alchemy itself forms part of the corpus, shall we call it, of the mystic arts and practices uh, of the Western tradition. Those include uh, astrology, theurgy or magic, tarot, which you guys are very familiar with, and the system that pulls it all together, which is the Kabbalah in this specific sense that I study and practice is the, called the Hermetic Kabbalah, 
And the reason for that is because it is based on the uh, on Hermes Trismegistus, which means Hermes the thrice greatest. He was the equivalent of Thoth for the Greek pantheon, the messenger and scribe of the gods. And in the Latin uh, version of that, he's known as Mercurius. So there's Mercury, the whole idea of the communicator and so forth. Mercury is a big deal in, in alchemy. Uh, the word itself is Arabic. And uh, had we not had uh, the golden age of Islam uh, preserving all of these ancient works from Alexandria and whatnot, we would not know about uh, this entire tradition itself. So Al-Kami in Arabic literally means from Kim. Kim is the ancient name for Egypt in their original language. But interesting, you hear that sound, Kim also is where we get our word chemistry from. Mm. And Al sounds an awful lot like L for me. So in a, and it's not stretching or distorting the tradition to say Al-Kami could almost be thought of as God chemistry. Huh, I like that. And so hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. But it does have two uh, versions or approaches, if you will. One of them is speculative, and that would be considered like most people who are exposed to Hermetic Kabbalah or magic as being meditative and symbolic, and uh, we are transmuting not uh, real gold, yeah, real lead into gold, but the base metal of our ignorance into spiritual gold. And this is what the Philosopher's Stone, as a symbol of truth itself, allows us to do. But it does have that, but it has a real practical laboratory aspect to it as well. And as all things are, since everything uh, is an absolute unity, and you can take that one to the bank, the source of being uh, unifies all things, what goes on on the inside of you takes place on the outside and vice versa. The, there is something, this, this wonderful artifact called the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, where everybody goes, and they, almost everybody says it without really thinking about, well, as above, so below, as above, so below. Well, what are we talking about there? It's better if we try to think of it as, as within, so without. So there is a direct correlation and connection between what happens inside of you and what goes on outside of you. If, if everything was not one, then alchemy and magic would not work. Uh, and my, neither would astrology. My impression of, of people that pursue the concept of the practical alchemy is it seems like it, it's separated from the, um, the speculative one. So it's, you know, you don't really hear normally of someone who's esoteric also pursuing the practical alchemy, but maybe that's me. I, that's, it seems like, in, at least in modern times, in fact, I didn't know until you sent me some materials that people are seriously pursuing yes. the practical side and very serious scientists even because yes. it's not as well known as the other one in modern days. That's quite true. Uh, there are not that many practical laboratory alchemists because it's not easy. They don't call it the great work for nothing. There is a lot of work that's involved with doing it. And just as we do magical rituals or meditations, this working with different kinds of herbs and uh, distillation processes and laboratory glassware 
and so forth and so on. It is as if you're doing a ritual on the outside, which changes you on the inside. And I will guarantee you from my uh, discussions with other laboratory practicing alchemists, and I mean people who have had multiple decades in it, uh, you don't succeed at some of these things until your consciousness changes. And that is extremely significant. It's not just, oh, I have to have the right recipe. Mm -hmm. No, it's almost like cooking. And in a way, if you think about it, you know, when you don't feel so good and you try and cook and whatnot, the food kind of doesn't come out as good. But if you're feeling good and there's love and everybody's with you, you know, in a family and so forth and you're cooking, it's an expression of that. And the food is just, it's sumptuous. And that's the that's idea true. behind alchemy, practical lab alchemy. Okay. So the, the people that, that you, you know oh. that practice um, the practical side, have they told you they've evolved more because of starting at the practical level or were they already interested in both to begin with? They were interested in, in both to begin with, and a great many of them have a lot of practice with tarot and with uh, magic and so forth. But then the thing is, it's kind of like a specialization. So you guys are into tarot reading. You've got some people who are really great in ritual magic. Then you've got people who are alchemists and the same kind of thing that it is. You know, some people can do really good teaching. They are great writers or they work together with others to create uh, different situations or healing situations that we see going on in the world, <laughs> which are, it's not obvious, but they do happen. So it just kind of depends. It's like you should be exposed to all of these things, and then you're going to be drawn to your natural talent. And that could be the laboratory alchemy or, or so forth. Granted, there are a few people who do it because it is not an easy process. I was impressed with the uh, the journal you sent me, Neutrogeno. Is that that? I think that's what yeah, it was. Yeah, I wish there was more of that published. But that yes. um, the article on making gold three. I'd never heard of the Japanese chemist. No, why would I though? Uh, Hantaro Nagako, who they actually did make gold yes. out of a mercury isotope. Now, actually, yes. it, it sounds like it. It took like hundred and fifty thousand volts of of electricity or something. It sounds like you couldn't just do it in any kind of a lab, but the fact that they actually did that, I was astounded. I mean, I'd never heard of that. Yeah, before. yeah. That's that's what most people point to that yes, transmutation of one element to another, it's possible, but you need something that's the same. And it, it's not lead. Lead is very close to gold, but mercury is even closer in its atomic structure and weight. So you can bombard it with uh, a lot of stuff and turn it into a radioactive isotope. It's extremely expensive, i.e. like 150,000 bucks an ounce to produce. But as it decays, because it decays very rapidly, uh, as I understand it within a matter of hours, its stable form is gold. That's amazing. But here's the thing. Uh, there are more than one way to transmute any base metal into gold. Gold is seen like the perfection of all the metals, what they are all striving towards, because everything is evolving, not just us, but in the animal kingdom, in the vegetable kingdom, and in the mineral and metallic kingdom. They're striving towards this. And gold is very unique in a lot of different ways. Let's think about this. It's the best conductor. After that comes silver and then copper. It is the only heavy metal we can ingest without any kind of 
toxicity at all whatsoever. Mm. It doesn't tarnish. It's very hard to, to dissolve or melt. You need something called aqua regia, which is uh, a vitriolic mix of uh, hydrochloric acid and a few other things to begin to dissolve gold in the first place. But according to the alchemical tradition, gold is like crystallized sunlight, which means the most important thing of it is its color. Now, there was a book published uh, in the 70s and 80s by a publisher in England called Neville Spearman, which is called The Gold of a Thousand Mornings. And it is uh, the recount of a French alchemist named Armand Barbeau, who got into this through astrology. But he interpreted a couple of different alchemical writings, classical ones, mostly something called the Mutus Libor, which means the silent book in Latin. And he came up with a process in which he was able to take powdered gold and run it into this prepared material, uh, dew and earth and, and very common things that had been prepared in a certain way, so that what would come out is this bleach white uh, substance weighed the same, but the color was extracted and put into dew. And this, he believed, was what they had described as potable or vegetableized gold, and it was quite a powerful medicine. He extracted the color of gold from gold. Wow. And this is the kinds of things that alchemy can do. So, so what do you do particularly that you think is more geared towards using alchemy itself on the, on the tree? Like, is there specific rituals, or do you feel it's just kind of woven into your understanding of Hermetic Kabbalah? It can be ritualistic, but it's mostly an understanding and appreciation because the alchemists look at uh, something they call the book of nature. And the book of nature to them is the very first Bible written directly by the hand of God, not by some divinely inspired human. That doesn't degrade all of these. It merely means that the sacred scriptures are copied upon the book of nature. Mm. And as you read the book of nature, then you learn about this stuff. So now all of a sudden, here we are into astrology, the rhythmic time periods. Here we are into herbology, what kinds of things grow around you. Uh, for an example, uh, if you've ever had cognac, the cognac grapes in France are pretty big. They're you know kind of like this size. And only in cognac France do they yield uh, content of 38% alcohol when they ferment. People have taken these grapes, they've taken the soil, they've gone to other places that are exactly the same, and they never get the same amount of yield. Only in France, there, does that happen. And so it's the understanding of the unique qualities, shall we call them the uh, uh, waveform patterns, the harmonics of the areas where you are and whatnot, that produce certain unique effects that you can't find anywhere else on the globe. Well, it seems like this would be a, a really um, good time right now for alchemy to really rise in terms of its connection to nature, considering yeah. the, the dire state straits we're in, and especially connected to plants, because I, I think that a lot of people I meet on the spiritual path, they, they understand plant medicine when it has to do with the hallucinogenics, but they, they really leave out some of them, 
the other side the, the, of, of plant medicine that other people like herbalists and people that make perfumes and, and by connecting more to the plant element, I feel like that would really help connect to everything in the environment. Yeah, there are two aspects to alchemy in the practical lab pathway, shall we call it. One is called the lesser circulation, which has to do with the attainment of, in Latin, the opus minor, meaning the little work. And in that, you know, all of our modern medicines come from uh, herbs and whatnot, medicinal herbs and so forth. So if we take a medicinal herb and we are able to separate its essentials, which under alchemy is salt, sulfur, and mercury, mercury being the spirit or the physical substance that carries that particular quality of the life energy, and the sulfur and the salt, and we purify them and recombine them, you'll actually come up with a thing that looks like a little hard stone. And that stone, the vegetable stone, or little work, has the medicinal qualities of the plant it was made from in a kind of logarithmic expression. In other words, the stone itself, depending upon what you've done with it, is like 10 times stronger or 100 times stronger or 1,000 times stronger. And it has the unique ability of being something like a sponge, meaning you can take that stone and put it in an alcohol uh, solution of the herb it was made from, and it will draw off from the herb you put in there all the medicinal qualities. So there is this idea of, of doing that in the practical sense in order to have uh, very powerful medicines. Is that homeopathy? Do they do that? Homeopathy is a derivative of alchemy. Basically what they do is an idea that there's an inverse ratio. In other words, the less you use of something, the more powerful it is. And essentially, uh, now this is my own personal opinion, and I'm not knocking homeopathy, homeopathy, uh, at all. But I think that ultimately the thing is that these expressions of the life force, whether it's a mineral, metallic, vegetable, whatever, that has a certain quality, calls it forth in you and you are healed by it. Otherwise, how could we have these placebo effects? Mm -hmm. So you remove that vehicle expression, whatever it is, make it smaller and smaller, the more powerful it becomes. Why? Because now it's expressing itself through you. You are drawing on your own natural resource of it. That's now, my thought. That's, my, that's, that's theory. That's my thought. So. Now, could you share with us some of the um, sort of well-known alchemists through history that you have come across that either have taught you something or you feel are significant in their contributions? Well, uh, they are kind of, the further back you go, the more legendary the personality becomes. Hermes is one that we just mentioned. But as you come up in here, one of the greatest ones was Paracelsus, who was, uh, his name was Theorastus von Bastus von Hohenheim. Uh, and uh, he called himself Paracelsus, just means that he was beyond Celsus. And he did uh, some amazing stuff uh, he was known as the Swiss Hermes in the late uh, 1400s to early 1500s. He upset his colleagues in the medical field, the other physique or physicians, as they were called, such that they uh, actually conspired to assassinate him, which they did. 
but the man was an amazing uh, person for that that went along. He was the first one to say, besides mercury and sulfur, there is also salt. He added this third aspect, which represents the physical vehicle for both the uh, spirit and the soul, mercury being spirit, sulfur being the soul, to be combined in a regenerated uh, vehicle of expression for it of some kind. That's where we get the idea of, uh, you know, uh, the salts of something, mm. the mineral or metallic salts are the salts that are left over when you uh, are purifying an herb or something like that. Mm. So there's, there is him. There's another guy by the name of Michael Svendegovius, who was a, a Polish adept. And all of these guys uh, wind up uh, discovering different kinds of substances that we now claim in regular chemistry as elements, okay, and different kinds of processes for working with them, uh, alchemical processes or chemistry, what we would call chemistry, uh, chemical processes working with them. So there's that. For the 20th century, uh, what comes to mind very easily is a fellow by the name of Albert Richard Rydell, better known as Frater Albertus, Jean Dubois in, uh, um, in France was a colleague, and he was very well advanced in, in practical laboratory work as well. Uh, today, we have people who from that school of Paracelsus, uh, which is something that Albert uh, Albertus tried to start. He actually had a college that was recognized by the U.S. government as being an educational institution, which I attended. Hmm. And he was putting together a company called Parachemy, which was like producing alchemical medicinal products, and they were also going to have a hospital. That was called the TriStar Pro Project, and it didn't materialize, unfortunately. But his head chemist for Parachemy is a guy by Robert Allen Bartlett, and you can find him on the web. He's written a couple of uh, books. This is a man who is a degreed analytical chemist, but also an alchemist. And he has some other stuff he's going to come out. So he's done the alchemical stuff. He's also looked at it with uh, chromatic gas uh, spectrographs and all this other kind of stuff. What is it? How does it work? What do we see about it? And so forth. I've spoken with uh, Robert and Karen a number of times. I can tell you their, their uh, medicines that they do put out on the web are the genuine product. And uh, look up uh, his website. You'll find him. So there, there are some other people that, that are around. There is a laboratory in Germany called Phoenix Labs, which has been owned by the same family since before World War I in the end of the uh, 19th century. And they actually have affiliations with other doctors in Canada and in Europe and whatnot. Unfortunately, in this backward country of ours, there aren't any here, but they have been producing these alchemical medicines and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and, you know, you mentioned at the end of it, but if anybody wants uh, references to these people and their websites and whatnot, they can contact me and I'd be happy to put them on onto that. So it's actually going on. It's not really obvious. It's not big up in lights like Pfizer and, you know, Moderna and all these other people are making vaccines and so forth, but it is definitely there and has been around for a long time. Well, it sounds like the examples you're giving, it seems like Europe is more uh, interested or pursuing it on a more more consistent basis than, say, yeah. United States. It's probably just individual people 
in their small laboratories, not getting funded or support or, or well-known. Yeah. And if you want the answer to that, they're older cultures. We're only about a little over 200 years old. You go to France and Spain and whatnot, you're looking at cultures that are a thousand years old and older. Well, and, and uh, you know, the United States has this sort of stigma with, uh, I think, I don't know, mixing certain things together, even though originally, you know, alchemy was seen as a spiritual path. And, and the United States, it's not, I'm not sure how it would go over if I was a chemist doing alchemy by my, my peers. Okay, well, let, let, let's do this. There is a guy who is on the uh, faculty of John Hopkins, if that isn't good enough for you, who is both a uh, science historian and a chemist, speaks several languages, and he has been researching alchemy for the past 20-some years, uh, looking at it as practical laboratory alchemy. He has reproduced a number of the things that are described in these old works. His name is Lawrence Principe. He's on YouTube. You can find a lot of his stuff there. And in fact, I would recommend uh, The Secrets of Alchemy by this man because it's one of the best historical overviews of alchemy that I've ever read. That's amazing. So it, it is possible, it sounds like, but are, is anyone pursuing the idea of trying to attain the Philosopher's Stone or gold per se? Yeah, there are. There are a lot of uh, chemists who are either in uh, places of higher learning or whatnot, but shh, don't tell anybody, but I am interested in doing this stuff. Okay, that's kind of what's going on. And Lawrence, Larry is, is out there. He, he's, he's being upfront with all of this stuff and whatnot. And he says, I have people come up to me all the time, colleagues, and talk to me. Yeah, I'm you know looking at this and that and so on and so forth. So yes, there is a lot of interest even among the supposed poo-pooers in uh, academia. Well, considering the, the price of gold right now. <laughs> but what, what is exactly, um, when people say the Philosopher's Stone, what does that really entail? What does it mean? And what has it's, it meant? It's interesting. The confusion with that is because there are actually three different orders or classes of what that is. Basically, okay, basically it is the emblem and symbol of the absolute truth with a capital T. But how it represents physically is that one of the orders of it is the internal transmutation that takes place with the alchemist himself or herself. And what it is, is that there is this substance in our head uh, called uh, brain sand generally, and I don't remember the technical term, but you can look it up, put brain sand into Google, It'll tell you what this is. And it kind of forms uh, inside the brain where the uh, uh, pituitary and pineal are. And apparently, the idea is, is that that can actually organize itself into a crystal, a crystalline structure. And that crystalline structure then can, with what people know as the hidden fire, which is what Kundalini in uh, Sanskrit means, and the alchemists talk about the hidden fire all the time, can be energized to take advantage of even more powerful co ambient cosmic forces. So that's one aspect of it. There's another aspect of it, which is called the red powder projection. And this is what most people see as the thing that changes lead into gold, okay? Uh, and it can do that 
if you will. But here's something else a lot more interesting about it. If you run it through its process to purify it each time, and you really can't go beyond seven. So each time it becomes like, you know, like I said, 10 times stronger, 100 times stronger, 1,000 times, etc. Once you try and push it beyond the seventh level, as Manly Hall has written, he says it actually becomes the divine interpenetrative substance, and it will flow through the vessel you have it in like hot oil through paper, or it will uh, explode and turn into ash. So what does that mean? It is God in a jar, if you will. And one of the most fascinating things, according to the tradition, which I would like to witness before I leave this life, is you can take a few grains of this and put it onto a body of water. Let's say you're a swimming pool in the backyard. And just like the spirits of the Elohim, it'll move upon the faces of the water. And according to the tradition, it either creates an entire universe or a solar system which floats up out of the water into the air and shows you how it all came to be. And then eventually it dissipates. So it, it doesn't stay. It just shows you what is that's possible. What is possible. And that's what you're getting to. That was the point of these uh, supreme mysteries, as they're called. They, that's fascinating. They're, they're, I never heard about that. It, it's called the red powder. Is that right? The red powder projection. I never heard uh, and that. it mostly it is derived from gold. That's where you get this idea of the uh, uh, red rose coming from the golden cross for the Rosicrucian symbolism. It's a hieroglyphic mm. for that. But from silver, we get something called the white powder, which can transmute base metals into silver and is not as powerful a medicine, but is medicinal anyway. The, when you were talking about the brain sand, um, because I, yeah. I trained um, in Tantra, not, not sexual Tantra, but in, in Buddhism, Tantra is um, primarily seen as uh, visualizations with union with the deities. And um, there are some teachings I've received that talk about the physiology of progress in the body, including yeah. sensations that they monitor in their students. That's why you, when you have a teacher, they can tell you if they're, you're really getting something to change physiologically in your body. Right. And, and also that's why certain practices aren't given right away because it can negatively affect your nervous system and, and but the whole the channels that the the white and the red channels and but there are these really um, real things that happen in the body and it right. reminded me of that the whole brain sand because I know some right. of it comes from the head some of the sensations and and things to help show if if the practices are kind of taking I would say is, is yeah. how you look at it so the yeah, yogis know that too yeah there are physiological changes uh, when I started taking some of uh, uh, Robert uh, Bartlett's uh, tinctures from gold and whatnot. Uh, as they get older, you get these little skin tags, they call them, you know, these little things sticking out from my body. And then after taking it for like a year, or a little bit more, I mean, I got out of the shower when I go, hey, I'm looking in the mirror, those things, they've gone. Do they fall off? Do they get sucked back in? I don't know, but they're gone. And then lately, because we do a lot of stuff, uh, our children were raised up in this. My son told me this story because of COVID and whatnot. He's got a, a, a lady doctor 
and she ran a blood test on him about a couple of months ago. And she said, you know, your blood test came back perfect. And he says, what do you mean? I said, for every single category we tested for on the blood panel, you were perfect. You were the right number. And I said, well, that's great. He says, but it's just, it's so unusual. Can I run into the test again? And he said, sure, go ahead. And it came back the second time that way. So yeah, there are real physical changes that take place. So, and this is for real. It happens. It's not pie in the sky. Uh, and it is a very ancient, uh, laudable, that's why it's called the royal art. And was your is your son a practicing alchemist? No, he's not. But he, I mean, he grew up in our environment, you know, so he, he's very sensitive, like his mom. Uh, I remember uh, he told me a story once where he got he went to see a part of the Iron Curtain, the concrete, but it was in uh, Orange County, and he went there at night. And he said, "Oh, the feelings were just you know, I, I couldn't deal with all the energy coming off the stone and whatnot." And he's like that. He's also seen other things and so forth. So he's a very sensitive person. Mm, how nice. Yeah. Now, um, there are some tarot decks that openly, and, and, and also books that openly talk about alchemy in the deck. So the two that I can think of off the top of my head is, of course, Crowley's deck in his book of Toth. Um, when I first read it, it was very difficult because I had no background in Western esoteric. And even yeah. now, I the alchemical parts, I, I still don't know how to apply them to anything practical. But also, I think Paul Foster Case would be another example of outwardly talking about alchemy in the tarot. Um, so could you address that a little bit? And if you, are there other, I, I don't know if Waite does. I don't think he does. Um, well, actually, there is a deck done by a guy named Richard Place, and he's done an awful lot of decks. Uh, he's a very good artist, and, but he did do something called the Alchemical Tarot. And so he has alchemical symbolism in that. And he worked with another lady by the name of Jaili uh, with this kind of stuff where they really connected on a very deep level with the interior uh, speculative aspect of alchemy. So it's, it's a deck well worth having. I have a copy of it too. Mm -hmm. But what you will see is there are things that allude to this along with other processes that are going on. Basically, let us say that alchemy is the process of transmutation. What does that mean? That means that we are trying to come up with other versions of ourselves which are closer to the original that we come from the higher self as it's called, or whatever you want to. So in a sense, the Philosopher's Stone is an emblem for that aspect of it as well. And, and, and honestly, that that that's really fascinating because every now and then when I, I've been involved in metaphysics since I was a teenager in some form or another, and every now and then I think, what are we really doing, all of us? What are we really striving for? And have, have any of us succeeded? And if so, who who are these people? So for instance, you know, Carl Jung, I know at the end of his life or throughout it, but he specifically got really involved in alchemy. And I I love a lot of Jungian writing, but lately I've, I'm considering him as a person. He had some deep, deep flaws. <laughs> and it's <laughs> there's no way all. around it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you can't overlook it. It, it, it yeah. would be wrong. And I think he would he would also say it is wrong. But um, so, you know, you can't necessarily use him as an example of attaining some state or something I would strive for, but, but who would be, or is there even an example of what alchemy can do for us in terms of transmuting us into the other? 
Well, I, I think the idea is, and this I learned from Frater Albertus when I went to Paracelsus College. He said the word human, if you look it up, it has some Sanskrit in it, and the hue part of it means to be more than mankind. So that's the idea. We are striving for this goal of becoming truly human, and that's where I've kind of rewritten the, the second order obligation, if you will, uh, from the Golden Dawn, not to be more than human, but to be truly human, to, to come to that ideal. And let's face it, all of us are going to have these limitations. There's the one poison, boy, this is the guy I want to be and want to be. So you look at a more, I would say, mythological a lith, uh, mythos of that. And so one of them is the Isos Christos, Jesus Christ, the truly human one, the one that uh, in Judaism they're expecting to come, the, the Messiah, and so forth. And they've had other people who are Messiah-like. Moses was one. Actually, Cyrus was one, too, because he told the Jews, okay, you can all go back to Israel. And that was the first Zionate under Ezra in the books of Ezra that they talk about. That's, that's the idea. In other words, what we are looking for are people who have those kinds of human or humanitarian or human-like qualities that they, that they show that. And there's people all over the place. The point is that we have the potential to be that. And I don't focus so much on who did this or who looks like that. What is my responsibility to become a human being and to do that to my fellow human beings? No, I hear you. And it's just a question I ask myself. And the reason I do is I think there is, and it must be my Aquarian ascendant. I do think there's something more than just, I think that is part of, I totally agree with being just fully human. I, I, there's actually, in Buddhism, there's a translation of that that someone told me when taking refuge, and, and it comes out as to being more human. And I don't think we're, we're certainly not human enough at this point in our species. But mm -hmm. I wonder if there is some qualities that, that will naturally evolve out of us. For instance, when you look at nature, the great teacher, and you see that a frog can grow its leg back and we, we are, things like that, I wonder if we will become more like that because, you know, you'll hear miracle healings with someone that's so extraordinary and you figure, well, if one person can do it, that means we all have that genetic potential. And what is the trigger? What is the catalyst that makes it happen? So I, I get intrigued by what I think nature is an amazing teacher and I, the things that, that birds can do. And, and I think we're, we're a young species, no matter what ancient alien says. <laughs> the show. <laughs> okay. At least this incarnation, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. We have what I like to call uh, latent potentials and inherent divinity. And the mysteries, East or West, ancient, modern, whatever, are a systematized method of bringing that out, of realization of it within you and then collectively within all of us. It's not an easy process. It is very hard because we have to face all of our foibles and limitations and all that other stuff. Like you say, well, you know, Young was just this and whatnot. You know, so am I. I mean, I'm afraid I have to put on my pants one leg at a time. My poop still stinks. What can I say? You know, I'm working on myself. I'm a work in progress. So are we all. But the mysteries demonstrate a way of us to achieve 
this goal. And there are others, our elder brothers and sisters, who certainly have. And and do you do you think people really um, going back to the whole the gold idea? Do you think really people that were just simple alchemists without any of the modern equipment had accomplished that? Because I got that impression in the legends, there were alchemists um, that had accomplished this, but they would only make so much gold. Like there was this this sort of ethics behind what the gold was for, which I found kind of fascinating because a lot of you think of people wanting gold, having the gold fever, there's no end to how much gold I can have. And it was just, again, in one of the articles in Neutrogena talking about yeah. this idea of having these ethics, and that's part of the alchemist chemical path, which I found really uh, interesting and noble, actually. Yeah, there. the point is not to turn something into gold and create gold and have a lot of gold. The point is to understand the mysteries of nature to such a deep and intimate degree that that can be accomplished, that you can make these amazing medicines and so forth. And I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. The uh, Great Pyramid had these wonderful limestone casing stones on it. And they were so finely put together, it was like the thickness of, of a knife blade or whatnot. And there's a mortar in there. They actually had a mortar that they put into there. And that mortar holds onto those stones even after thousands of years so strongly that the stone will break before the mortar will give away. Hmm. That was an alchemical product. Wow. Do they know how that came to be? Uh, I haven't heard anything for anybody who's given a good analysis <laughs> of it, but it exists. Wow. Yeah, that, that know, totally fascinate, fascinates me when you have things like that from long ago and we can't figure out sure. how they did it. Sure. Sure. There is this iron column uh, in some courtyard somewhere in India that doesn't rust, has never corroded, and has been standing out in the open for hundreds of years. You know, I mean, the, the point is, alchemy says that we can aid nature and have it achieve its perfection. And that's true for all of us. And that's the idea. That's the culmination of the great work. And it happens on all this stuff outside. Everything, doesn't matter if it's a stone, a rock, a tree, a, uh, an animal, or us, or some other kind of being that's not necessarily physical, has a potential for perfection. And that is what alchemy and the mysteries in general are here to give us. That is their goal and why we work at them. That's why we do it. You know, you wonder why do we do this? This is the point. To, to realize this kind of thing and to adjust ourselves to be in harmony with the flow of nature itself. That's why it's called the way of return. That's very Taoist. And, and I think it's an important emphasis because of the idea that, that some religions um, emphasize or certain parts of religion emphasize dominion over nature, which good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the idea of of working in harmony. Uh, one of the most endearing things that I've noticed, probably in the last decade, is um, there is uh, because of the videos and the internet, you see these interesting relationships formed with people and animals in the wild that they that that aren't normal or ordinary, and they're not people 
that are trained in shamanism, which you would expect, but they're just ordinary kids and they'll have this unique uh, connection. And I feel that that's a hopeful sign of, of cooperating, of wanting to be in harmony with our other, the other creatures of the world. And, and I, I really find that part very inspiring. I think so too. Uh, just in that regard, uh, there was a couple of English guys who raised a lion cub in England. They called him Christian. And eventually they returned him to the wild, okay? So after a year, they went looking for him. And you can find this video on YouTube and elsewhere in which they found him and he saw them and he came running towards them, not to attack them, but he actually stood up on his hind legs, threw his big paws, gave him a hug, you know, good to see where you've been. And here is that kind of, and it's just so obvious. You know, and and that is true because what we will find, and anybody who's had a pet or whatnot, these are sentient beings. They have personality. They have emotions. They dream, you know, and just like us, they have all of this stuff. And we need to be much more aware of that aspect of nature itself. These are sentient beings. They all are to a greater or lesser degree, even the stones and the rocks and so forth. And we have to be mindful of them. Uh, and this is what the book of nature will teach us. This is what alchemy will teach us, that well, we will learn to live with this harmony in nature. If you do that, then there is no limit to what we can do. We can have sustainable energy. We can have warm life. We can have lack of mental and physical uh, disease that we have now and so forth. In fact, I met a guy once uh, who was... Uh, full-blooded Indian, and his grandfather was actually on the Trail of Tears. And he oh. says, you know, I, I don't know what heartburn is. Never had a headache or anything like this. That's got to tell you something, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of um, symbols in alchemy that are connected to birds, especially, right? Eagle and the lion. And that always kind of drew me in when I'd say, Ooh, what is that? You know, or isn't, I think the crow or raven different stages of alchemy. So it's kind of woven into it in terms of the symbolism. Yeah. For birds, the thing about a bird is that a bird can fly. And for a very long time, we couldn't fly. <laughs> so having birds that fly up in the atmosphere to be closer to the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth, they're like our thoughts or our spirits. And that's what they represented. The other thing is other animals have these other qualities. The lion is very solar and very brave and all of this kind of stuff. Then you have to look at the chimera kinds of animals. That is the composite animals, mm. like the sphinx, for example. And so the sphinx has... The head of a man, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wings of an eagle. The forepart is a lion and the back part is an ox. Guess what? Ezekiel happens to talk about that with the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle, you know, in his vision of the chariot of the celestial chariot of God. That's so an incredible, um, the, the yeah. Sphinx is really kind of amazing. I was really young. I was in my um, early twenties. I went to Israel. Uh, we stopped in Egypt on this, on a dig and we stopped in Egypt. And I remember just taking pictures of the Sphinx over and over again with just not really knowing much about anything at that point in my life. There's something about being in its presence that is very mesmerizing. I, I suppose the pyramids are like that too. You, maybe it's the history, who knows, but you, you don't even have to know anything and you kind of feel the, 
the importance or the magic of it, I would say. Yeah, it's like that thing with Cognac France. There, there are these waveform patterns or harmonies that you can find in certain places and that go along with certain objects, what we would call in Hermeticism that has a magic charge. And that is true of, of places and of objects and so forth. And you can impart that and you can also feel it and whatnot. Certain people who are sensitive, like uh, my, uh, my wife and uh, Dolores Ashcroft Novitsky of Servants of the Light, she says, you know, I can't be in a museum after dark. I just can't. It's just too overwhelming for me, <laughs> you know? And, and that was an interesting one to me because I remember personally taking a little walk around downtown Riverside during the daytime. And I learned that the pressure of the sunlight suppresses these ambient energies. And when uh, you have people that sight ghosts and so forth, it's kind of like in the middle of the night. Well, guess what? You have the 8,000 miles of insulation of the earth between where you are on the earth and the, the solar radiation. Mm -hmm. So that stuff comes out. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was fascinating for me to go around and kind of psychically survey the landscape, if you will. Because mm -hmm. uh, like, there was one alley I said, oh man, people have been murdered down there. I, I don't even want to go down there. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there, there are places that. that definitely hold energy for sure. I mean, positive, negative, um, even, you know, maybe some more moderate, but I, I agree with you for that. So now if I was a person that said, I just wanted to find out more about anything with alchemy and I did not know anything, where would I start? What would be a good way to start without feeling like completely overwhelmed? Principe's book is one thing. Uh, Robert Allen Bartlett's are another. Uh, again, if someone would like some book references, you know, give out my contact information. I'll be happy to point them in some directions. Again, we come back to this unfortunate thing. Maybe I'll wind up doing it with another guy by the name of John Reed, who's in White Plains, New York. That man has over 30 years experience in the lab. He's a, he's a true craftsman. Mm. And we've talked about writing a book together on Kabbalah and alchemy and how they interrelate. So maybe eventually we might, may write the definitive volume on what alchemy is all about. But since there isn't one, you kind of have to piecemeal it together. You got to, here's a puzzle piece, here's a puzzle piece. And you need to get some uh, ones that are authoritative and salient and give you a big enough picture. You put them to, you put the pieces together and say, okay, now I get it about what it is. And that's why it's so hard for someone to kind of wrap their head around. It's not uh, just uh, an internal practice. It's an external practice. How do they interrelate? What are their goals? What is the way that they look at the world? And so forth. So it's not an easy thing to do. There are some basic ideas, and I would be more than happy to email or video conference with anybody who wants to get into uh, finding out how that works. What is your email address? My email address is by names and images number eight at gmail.com. By names and images all written out, number eight at gmail.com. All right, and we'll definitely put the, the link uh, beneath the video today. And also for people um, that don't know, on our website, we always put the contact information forever uh, for the guests. So you can always go back and look and say, oh, I want to, you know, contact this guest or that guest and there's contact information for everybody so and if something doesn't work just sure. let us know because it should all work so just wanted to put that out since we were talking about that 
So um, yeah. I always like to ask this question on any path. Um, are there any pitfalls or dangers in pursuing alchemy that you can think of? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, the, the way the energy volatility or how powerful something is, uh, is that the vegetable work, we talked about that, is kind of at the lowest. The animal, the animal and work in us is in the middle, but the highest, most powerful stuff is the mineral and metallic work. Now, when we created the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project, we had to create a substance called plutonium, which only existed a few little atoms at a piece uh, in nature. And so we invented a process of enriching uranium and then eventually boiling it down you know, through a process into plutonium. And it cost billions of dollars to do. And what did we get from that? <laughs> to open up the atom and let out the strong nuclear forces that hold the uh, nucleus of an atom together, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it was, yeah, I would say there's some pitfalls here and there and whatnot. Uh, mortals rushing in or angels fear to tread as the saying goes. And, and so now we have to live with this. Right. You can't undo that. You can't undo that. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So there are always things that are like that. There is the, from my mind, that's the most obvious. Everybody knows about it, historical example. And maybe not everybody realizes the process that some of our first thing of transmuting uranium into plutonium, an alchemical process, mm. came from that. Now, if I'm doing my own lab, is there a danger of exploding things if I don't know what I'm doing? It depends. Uh, it is, like I said, the energy volatility for the vegetable uh, work is a lot lower. So you have less problems there, although you can have problems. When you get into the mineral and metallic work, it's a bigger deal because we're talking about poison gases, which they call the dragon's breath and other things that could blow up. And there is a direct relationship between your karmic debt that you have to expiate and what goes on to you in the lab. You're, you're attempting to accelerate your spiritual evolution, which is not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but it has to be kind of carefully done. <laughs> you know, you just don't go driving down the Autobahn at 100 miles an hour unless you're doing, you know what you're doing. And that's, that's the idea. So uh, I, if you're doing a laboratory work, the only thing I would say is depending upon what you want to do, you might want to take a few classes at your local junior college uh, in uh, you know, lab chemistry and find out what that's all about. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, but I guess you have to start somewhere and maybe starting, like you said, with the vegetable and getting a couple classes in there. So, yeah, no, that, that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, so we're, we're winding down to about five minutes. And is there anything you'd like to leave people in terms of with thoughts about alchemy and in general or, or how it can benefit one's life or anything at all? Well, I'd like to read something which is from the Hermetic Corpus, if I may. Sure. It's not very long, uh, but it was translated by G.R.S. Mead, uh, and it's from something called The Mind Unto Hermes. So it goes like this. Unless you make yourself equal to God, you cannot understand God. For the like is not intelligible save to the like. 
Make yourself grow to a greatness beyond measure. Leap forth. Free yourself from the body. Transcend time. Become eternity. Then you will understand God. Believe that nothing is impossible for you. Think yourself immortal and capable of understanding of all. All arts, all sciences, the nature of every living being. Become loftier than the highest height. Descend lower than the lowest depth. Draw unto yourself all sensations of everything created, fire and water, dry and moist, imagining that you are everywhere at the same time, on earth, in the sea, in the sky, that you are not yet born, in the maternal womb, adolescent, old, dead, beyond death. If you embrace in your thought all things at once, times, places, substances, qualities, quantities, you may understand God. And the note is that the above quote is taken from the 11th tract of the Corpus Hermeticum as translated by G.R.S. Mead, who was both a scholar and a mystic. Uh, the Corpus is the foundation of Hermeticism and was largely reintroduced into Renaissance Europe through Italy during the 15th century. Some of these works have also been discovered in the Nag Hammadi Library giving them an origin from the first to the third centuries. Sir William Petrie stated that some of these works also come to us from the sixth century BCE during the Persian rule of Egypt. Wow, that, that's beautiful. I love that. There was many, many ideas in there that I really uh, thought were really beautiful and difficult. <laughs> well, that's why I like to call alchemy God chemistry. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it, it, it's a, now now I understand its vastness and I don't feel at all bad about being confused about it. <laughs> no, nobody should because it's an unfolding mystery that no one has explored the absolute ends of for anybody. Yes. You know, and, and don't feel bad about that. Don't feel overwhelmed by that. If you feel drawn to it, there's a reason for that. There's, there's some kind of background karmically and elsewhere. There's a reason you're, you're being drawn to this. Well, what I took from it, especially today, was the idea of the book of nature. And I, I've always been had a close connection to nature, and I, I'm going sort of deeper into it as I get older, actually, even. And and I said, well, in that way, I like alchemy. I love that idea, and it, it really spoke to me. So it sounds like you can also enter alchemy in different ways, just like some people enter, enter the tarot in different ways. And every, every door is okay to go in through that door or this door. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and that's the point. It doesn't matter how you approach it. You will study all of it. You will discover your talents, and then those you should definitely pursue. Well, thank you again for joining us today. We really loved having you, and we'll certainly have you back. You have a wealth of knowledge and experience and some fun stories, so we really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all of you. Again, thank you so much for subscribing and helping us hit that 1K. And we look forward to next time when we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a wonderful week.